You're listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Brian Benham. And I'm Greg Porter. All right, and today is our first episode. We're doing a little bit of an introductory episode on who we are and what our podcast is going to be about. Yeah, and I think uh, we're going to do a little bit of an interview format. So I'll interview Brian and he'll interview me, ask some good questions and just kind of let you know a little bit about who we are. All right. Do you want to uh, go first? Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just uh, very basically, um, what what is it that you make and uh, kind of what's your background in terms of making things? So I am a custom furniture designer and I design furniture that I try to make look more like art. I don't want it to be like a shaker piece of furniture or a green and green piece of furniture. I want it to look like art. So that's my basic premise, my goal as I as I move and design furniture. How I got started is just that typical story working with dad, he was in the construction industry. And so then I just grew up working in the trades my entire life. In 2008, the uh, housing market crashed and the uh, company that I was working for went out of business and laid us all off. And so I just started my own furniture company and that's what I've been doing since about 2008. Well, so a little follow-up question there. The tools that you use now in your furniture making, you know, we've seen your YouTube channel and all that. You've got a really great set of tools. Did any of that translate from the construction that you did, or was that a completely new shop full of tools that you had to acquire? That was a completely new shop full of tools. Uh, when I started in the trades, I was a kid. And so they're like, oh, just let, let them use your tools. And so I never had to really buy any tools. And then uh, as I went along, I uh, ended up being a project manager for a construction company, but then we just bought tools for the, uh, for the shop and, and all that. So when I started, I basically started from scratch. I had like your typical homeowner DIY hobby tools type of thing from Home Depot. So what drove you to make, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of unique. The furniture that you make is very much Brian Beanham style. Like there, there's a style to it. And there's, there's something different that you don't see in other people's work. Coming from a construction background, my suspicion is, you know, you follow drawings and you follow what other people are telling you to do. What drove you to create that unique artistic style of furniture that you do? Oh, wow. Um, I think one of the things that really set me down a trajectory of design was when I was working with another general contractor. Uh, he hired me to build uh, some built-in bookshelves for this project he was working on. And they did all this timber frame structure uh, inside the house. And it wasn't your normal timber frame structure that looks like, hey, this is a barn kind of a thing. Uh, it was really decorative timber frame structure. It had all these weird angles and geometric angles to it. And uh, each beam was bolted to uh, the floor with a decorative metal bracket that he had created. It wasn't just like your Simpson tie bracket it had these brackets that had uh, these angles coming off of them and the beam was cut at an angle and slid inside this uh, steel bracket that he had created and it was just incredibly decorative. And one of the things he hired me for was to build a front door to go with all the beams. And so I had to try to play off of his work. And as I studied all his angles and things, it really just, that was kind of the starting point for really creating geometry in the furniture that I'd make. So sort of thrust into it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he circumstance. Was, yeah, he was really just like an inspiration. Before that, I was really struggling to find my own voice and uh, to try to figure out what... Uh, 
what kind of style I wanted to do. And a lot of times uh, before that, I worked for a lot of interior designers and they would pull out their catalog and they would show their clients furniture. And if the client wanted, hey, 48 inches instead of 38 inches and that manufacturer didn't provide it at 38 inches, then I would build it at 48 inches, but I was building other people's designs. So it wasn't really like that exciting. And he was really the first uh, client that really kind of like helped me down a design path like hey this check this out this is what i'm doing i want you to create the front door to fit this geometric scheme that i have going on in the house so then i mean along those same lines you you had a background in construction what is your background in design uh prior to that was none it was uh it was just me trying to uh, create stuff. Like I always felt like I had a good design. eye. like, I would see something. I'd be like, wow, that's really cool. And it would kind of speak to me, the shape of it, but I never really knew how to take what I saw and turn it into something new, you know, turn it into a piece of furniture. So if, yeah, most of my construction work, uh, my first construction job was working for a bridge construction company in the fabrication shop building earthquake restraints. So I sat for hours at a, with a drill press, just drilling holes in plate steel to be bolted on the underside of a, a bridge beam or something. And then uh, moving into homeowner stuff, I, you just watch a lot of HDTV and you're like, ah, this is just like everybody else is doing the same thing. But clients would be like, yeah, I like that white kitchen, build me a white kitchen. And it's like, okay, call the cabinet guy up and he brings out white cabinets. But uh, yeah, that was really the first time that I was like, oh, I get it now. I kind of like realized like this, this is how to design, like to figure out how to play off somebody else's work and really play off other shapes and other pieces of inspiration. Well, it's, it's interesting. You, you sort of start down that path of, we always talk about trendsetter versus trend follower. Like, are you trendy? Well, if you're the trendsetter, you're always trendy, right? Like you're the person setting the bar and the people who follow it are always just a step behind, you know, and I, I see that in a lot of people's work that there's the innovation is happening in someone else's camp and not theirs. And, and their work is always just sort of like 10 minutes too late. <laughs> right, right. That's kind of going back to the uh, interior designer thing. And uh, maybe some of them will yell at me because I still work for quite a few interior designers, but uh uh, sometimes you're when I'm looking for like new clients and I see an interior designer advertise on their website that they keep track of all the trends that they're, they stay current, all the trends. I feel like that's probably not a good fit for what I want to do. They're the person that's going to want me to build the thing out of the catalog, not create my thing because they're just following the trends, not actually setting the trends. Well, and it's, it's interesting too, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but it's interesting to see one trend build off of another, off of another. I mean, it's all iterative, right? There's right. The, the furniture that you're building is a derivation of something that happened a hundred years ago and it's been developed and developed and iterated. And you've, you've landed on your twist that you put on that. And that's what makes it innovative, that new twist. I don't know. I, again, don't want to get too preachy or go down rabbit holes, but it's, it's fascinating to see, even if you're trying, you know, working with someone who's on trend, so to speak, how you can push that to the next level sometimes. Uh, yeah, kind of like take their idea and their trend and then add my little twist to it and like, hey, I like this is kind of like what inspired me to build this thing in this direction. Yeah. And 
I kind of wonder too, I mean, so you talked about, I think it was in your, in your first answer to the question I asked that you were looking at this timber frame building, looking at the angles and the geometry for inspiration. So when you take on a commission, where do you start from a design perspective? Are you looking, if, if somebody just gave you a blank piece of paper and said, design me something cool, is that where you would start? Or is it generally, hey, what kind of a house or structure or building is this going into? That's where I really want to start. Yeah, for sure. I did a project uh, not long ago where the client was like, blank slate, just do whatever you want. I, I want the artist to be the artist. And and uh, as an artist, you think, wow, that's great. This is awesome. I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. And then you sit down and you stare at this blank paper and you're like, what am I going to do? I have no direction. So <laughs> yeah, totally having uh, some kind of direction from the client is very much key. I just took on a uh, design deposit to start designing some custom shelves for a client to uh, display their cosplay stuff. So one of the things like, all right, well, what type of cosplay do you do? What is this going to look like? You know, so that way I can go look at that movie or that thing and see what the set design is like in that movie. Maybe I can bring some pieces of that design into the shelves. That's a really interesting <laughs> project to do. Yeah. Uh, some of the, some of the cosplay stuff out there, I think, you know, again, it's riffs on things that already exist. You know, most of the costumes are characters that we've seen, but then you see these really innovative next level next generation uh interpretations of what boba fett might be right uh, exactly 200 years from when boba fett was in the movie <laughs> from now or yeah or if yeah. boba fett lived in a victorian house or something then they have all these huge breadboard gingerbread scallops across the costume or something yeah like crazy stuff just kind of looking at the background there, you've got a couple pieces that I know are yours. I see a, a drawing of, I think it's Gandhi in the background. Am I right? Or is that someone I'm not, else? I'm not sure who that, uh, who that is, if that is actually Gandhi or not. I will have to ask the, the artist who that is. A friend of mine drew that probably before I was born. I think the date on it is in the early 70s, but he didn't actually give that to me. It kind of came to me somehow through some weird thing in life, but uh, yeah, it's a pencil drawing of a guy carving wood. Has an interesting way of getting to me, but uh, that might be some the conversation for another another thing. Okay. So, well, I was I was wondering if you drew that or if somebody else did, but I think the two the two things you have on the opposite wall are things that you built. Yeah, these two things uh, are from uh, genuine mahogany from uh, the island of Saint Lucia, and so basically. They're just tree stumps where this right here was a rotten branch. And so then I carved it out to kind of swoop around uh, to give it a little bit of decorative style and carved this branch to be kind of like a waterfall. The camera is too short to be able to see how the grain just falls across the top and then down the down the back. But uh, yeah, so those was a pretty fun project. Self-commissioned pieces are always pretty interesting. Yeah, well, that was a sponsor for a YouTube channel. Uh, my friend owns a small import business where they import exotic lumber and things from St. Lucia, mainly because they have family there and own property there. So if a tree blows down in a storm or something, then they go get that tree, slab it up and import it into the United States. So it's for the most part, sustainably harvest or reclaimed wood. Oh, wow. Cool. Well, so you mentioned YouTube. Um, this is a podcast and I can make some assumptions that people know who you are based on how they got here, but tell us just a little bit about your YouTube channel and what you do there. So my YouTube channel is a, uh, always 
evolving thing. I started out just really simple. I was kind of inspired by Jimmy Duresta. He, he just put a camera in his shop, turned it on, and then did kind of like a little sped up thing. And I thought, well, that's simple enough for me that I don't know what I'm doing to be able to do that. So I started doing that. And then it just has evolved into now it's kind of like a weekly vlog of this is what I built this last week in my shop. So uh, right now I'm working on a desk that was commissioned by a client and it has a lot of that similar geometric stuff we had talked about earlier in it. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I have, I have one more question okay. that I want to ask you. And I always find it interesting because I think everybody that, that I'm friends with in the, in the maker space that is, that have really sort of worked their way up and, and do really great work. Uh, they all get a big smile when you ask them this question and it's, what was the point in your life when you realized you could build anything? Oh, I don't know that I'm there yet. When I just ordered a 3D printer because I was like, like part of trying to figure out how to get this camera set up in a good spot. I was just cobbling together all these little parts and pieces from the GoPro uh, kit and things. And I was like, man, I just need a 3D print things. And I was like, yeah, that would be a cool thing. And so one of my friends just says, hey, buy this printer. It's dirt cheap. It'll be a good one for you to figure stuff out on. And uh, when I look back at my construction background, working in a steel fabrication shop for our bridge construction company, we had all kinds of mills and things that I was able to use and learn a little bit about milling and machining and all these things, but I don't have any of that equipment. So that's like one of my main goals is to be able to learn enough knowledge to be able to create anything. But I think what really made me realize that I could create anything is when I was working at that construction company, uh, when I was a teenager and whenever someone needed something, they were just like, all right, let's grab this piece of steel. We'll pull, throw it on the mill and we'll cut it out or let's go weld this thing up. And so they made tools that they needed to complete their job because you can't go down to Home Depot and buy a tool specific for building a bridge. <laughs> it just may not exist. You'd either have to find a specialty uh, company that makes that thing or you figure out how to make it yourself. So I think to really answer the, the question, Probably when I was in my early teens, I started working there as a summer job when I was 13. So I think that was kind of that point where like, wow, if you have enough skill and tooling, you can, you can build anything. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a cool spot to be in. It doesn't mean that you have the skills to build anything. You just sort of have that epiphany that you can figure it out. Like enough time and enough pieces and parts, you can figure out how to make anything. Right. For sure. Yeah. I mean, even, even if you don't know how to make it, you can screw up how to make it and then figure out how to make it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, so how about you? You, uh, you are an architect by day and you build guitars at night and machine, uh, have a whole machine shop in your garage. So how did you, how'd you get started in all this making stuff? Oh man. Well, probably a, a similar story. Um, as a kid, I always wanted things that I either couldn't afford or didn't have, or mom and dad didn't, you know, there, there was always these things. And, and being a fairly creative person, there was some amount of unobtainium, right? Like you would come up with this thing that you wanted, but it didn't exist in the real world. And uh, so then it was like, well, you know, I got to figure out how to make these things. And as a little kid, you don't have any facility to do it. Um, and, and you really don't know what you're doing. And, and, 
my whole childhood, I feel like was asking my dad for help to do things that he didn't understand what I was asking for. <laughs> and, uh, you know, of all the, the weird things, um, you know, I asked him to help me build a tree house when we were young, which is a common thing. Right. And I can remember my dad's a pretty handy guy. He was an electrician. Uh, and I, I started working with him when I was about 12 years old, but he wasn't a carpenter by any stretch of the imagination. And we, we started building this thing together. And, you know, I was just an elementary school kid and we got to the stairs and they, he just locked up. He, he had no idea how to, how to make the stairs work. And I can remember grabbing a piece of paper and drawing on it. Like, and the way I explained to him is we need, we need a piece that looks like a ship. And, you know, that was the stringer. Uh-huh. And, and that was the only way I knew how to, to communicate that, that that's what we needed is needs to kind of look like a ship, have, have ends like this and a straight section in the middle. He's like, okay, okay. My dad and I reasoned through making the stairs and the clubhouse was a success as, as awkward and weird and out of square that it might've been. Um, it was, it was a really great project, but it, it was again, one of those things that taught me, like, if you can picture it in your head, you can probably build it. and so that that was really the inspiration or the bug that that led me to i would say an entire life of making uh i had a a a neighbor that lived a couple houses down whose dad had a table saw and it was just a little contractor table saw and i remember begging him to let us build a skateboard ramp you know and i had i had drawn out this thing of what the skateboard ramp was going to be and he didn't understand it and gosh kind of story of my life but um he didn't totally understand it. And so he gave us a project to build and it was a toolbox. And I can remember, you know, like a round handle that we had to put a curve down the center of. And, and he, did, there was no oversight. It was a couple kids in elementary school, probably seventh grade, let loose with a table saw and other power tools. And uh, if I had kids that age, I totally would not let them just go for it. on No safety like concerns at all there. Yeah. None. No. And, and no safety equipment of any kind, no oversight. We just, we got it done. And those toolboxes were terrible. Uh, you know, things didn't line up, but I learned at that point that there's, there's a set of skills that I did not have at that point in time. And as creative as you are and whatever great ideas you have, if you don't have the skills to either communicate those to someone who can build it for you, or the skills to build it yourself, then it's never going to happen for you. And all of your great ideas are going to die somewhere between your brain and reality. And so I started down the path of, I want to be able to do all of this myself. And strangely enough, the toolbox was one of one of my first wood projects and one of my last for a very, very long time. I had decided that metalwork was way more fun than woodwork. And I got into welding and metal fabrication um, probably late in high school. Uh, I had a, an old Volkswagen that was the star of my YouTube channel. That, that was how my YouTube channel started, an old Volkswagen yeah. Carmen Ghia that I was restoring. And that was one of those cars. I loved the car. I loved the design of it. I think it's just an iconic design. And the car I had was completely rusted out. And then my brother backed into the front end of it. And it was, it was either acquire the skills to fix this thing, or you can't afford to have someone else do it. It was just too much work. So I started learning the art of welding. 
sheet metal, which, you know, butt welding sheet metal, when you talk to metal guys, that's one of the most difficult things to do. And that's where I started. And if you know anything about Carmen Gia's, they're, they're very bubbly and round shaped. So I bought an English wheel and learned how to raise my own panels on the English wheel. From there, it grew into, I wound up at architecture school at the University of Kansas. And one of my instructors uh, who I look up to to this day, Dan Rockhill, uh, had a practice, a design build practice. And all of his buildings and houses have this intricate metalwork. If you want to see some of the best designed metalwork, including houses, look up Dan Rockhill. His portfolio will just amaze you. And he was one of my biggest mentors in school, one of my best teachers. And he taught me how to incorporate steel design and make it, uh, how do I want to say, make it inviting for people. Steel is always this very cold, hard thing. And while those are tactile properties of it, you can make it into very beautiful, lacy, lightweight things that you can't do with other materials. And so this is a long, long answer to a short question, <laughs> but, but through the metal work, I realized that, and I started when I was in school making custom design furniture. And it was very, like I would spend an entire summer on one piece for somebody. And then they would pay me like a 12 pack of beer for it at the end of the summer. It was, it was kind of ridiculous, the amount of work that I put in, but that's the tuition that you have to pay to learn how to do some of these things. And uh, I realized that that really mixed media was where I wanted to land. And that was uh, marrying wood construction and steel and glass and maybe composite materials and other things. And, and it's led to a lifelong experiment for me. And as you mentioned, I also am a musician and guitars have been the love of my life. And I decided uh, quite a few years back that I wanted to start building guitars. And, and I've worked with guitars my whole life. We had a guy in our neighborhood who was a guitar maker and he showed me how to make guitars, but I didn't get to use his tools. I got to watch him in his workshop. And so all of those things have slowly culminated uh, over the course of my life into, into a company that makes tools for people who make guitars and then making my own guitars from scratch too. So that's a, that's a long version of how did I get here, but there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle. Yeah, for sure. So what, what made you decide you wanted to go to architecture school? Um, so uh, strangely enough, again, when I was a, a very young man, I wanted to be a cartoonist. That's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to draw funny cartoons. And I like to think I have a decent sense of humor. <laughs> and, and I studied pretty heavily Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. He was, he was my idol Absolutely. growing up. And uh, what a fantastic man that guy was. And what a, a sense of humor that just went on for years and years. I mean, he never missed uh, a single day in the paper. And he worked alone. He didn't have other people help write. He didn't have other people help draw. And I saw how much work that was and how much pressure it was to put out those daily strips and then the, the you know, the big weekly strips. Uh, and after reading his biography, I thought, well, maybe cartoonist isn't the right job <laughs> for me. Um, but I do want to draw for a living. But I think I have some technical chops, too. I was always... Uh, very good in math. And that wasn't because I was born smart. I studied hard. I really enjoyed 
the subject of math and I thought I was going to be an engineer and I actually started my college career as an architectural engineer and I learned that the engineers were really just going to be doing calculations the rest of their life and they didn't get to do the creative side and uh, very rapidly dropped the engineering part and just went architecture because because of that creative side um, I've always always wanted to create things whether that was music or art or architecture or fill in the blank and and so it was my mom always told me you know you'll starve to death being a guitar player and you'll starve to death trying to paint pictures for people and she said why don't you find a career that that marries those together and that's where architecture came from and um I've actually left the field of architecture. I left for about three years to go do big rock and roll shows. And I missed it so much. When I was on the road, I was actually doing uh, illustrations for architects and keeping my chops up because it was just something I, I couldn't divorce myself from. So, and go ahead. So now that, uh, now that there's things like uh, V-Ray rendering engines and things like that, do you miss uh, drawing or are you jealous of this V-Ray power? Or Well... I, I'm I'm jealous of V-Ray only because it didn't exist when I was really young. And so I was in architecture school. I started in 92 and that was right on the edge of hand drawing and computer drawing. And I was really in the first class to go through KU that started 100% by hand and ended on the computer. And one of the things I did is I was one of the, the early people using a program called 3D Studio and uh, it ran in DOS and it was this really awkward three-dimensional program. And so I was doing computer renderings before they were even heard of when I was ah, in school. Cool. And I had to uh, oh, do some nefarious pirating and cracking of software to get it to work because it was extraordinarily expensive uh, for a college student to have to buy that stuff. And anyway, uh, long story there, I got out of school and the first four years, five years of my career were spent as an illustrator. So we were asked to do computer renderings. We were asked to do watercolors, uh, graphite drawings, pen and ink. So I was able to marry together 3D modeling, rendering, and hand work and absolutely loved that, that part of my career. That whole combination, yeah. And cool. it's... Uh, you know, there's all these nuggets that I'll, I'll pass along. And one of those nuggets is somebody, somebody taught me early on that drawing is design and design is drawing. And what, what I mean by that is as you're drawing, you're trying to make the drawing look good. And so as you're doing that, you're designing and the design looks good because the drawing looks good. And the two are, you, you can't divorce the two. You can't take them apart from one another. If you have a good design, the drawing will look great. If you have a great drawing, the design is good. Okay, so, so I got to ask you, hold on. We got we to gotta step back a second. So uh, I think his name is Frank Gehry, architect. So yeah, I've, you're, I've you're aware of him. So yeah. I, I look at his drawings and they just like look like this scribbled mess of nothing. So you said the drawing has to look good for the design to look good. Like, how do you think he interpreted this scribble uh, drawing mess into a, a piece of architecture? Well, there's, there's a difference between design and inspiration. And when I okay. look at Frank's drawings, he, he has this great, if you're an architect, you think they're the greatest drawings ever because it looks almost like a signature. It's so fast, right? Yeah. He just scribbles this thing out. And I would, I would 
argue that it probably takes him a while to do those scribbles. They don't happen as fast as they look. I could be wrong. I've never seen Frank draw. But um, that said, that's an inspiration. And he has a team of architects that focus on that inspiration and bring it into a three-dimensional design. And anyone who's walked through a Frank Gehry building, I don't think you can turn around and say that design isn't great. Uh, he's pushing the envelope, he's innovative. Um, some people don't like it because it's too, uh, uh, no pun intended, it's too garish, it's too over the top, it's too flashy. But you can't take away the fact that it is incredibly innovative and the design is, uh, the, he's got chops. Definitely hard to figure out how to build it. To, yes. to turn that turn those curves into into something yeah. and i i don't want to get too crazy of a, a, a conversation into architecture but i've been in his buildings in several of his buildings as a from a critical standpoint and there are some caulk joints in those buildings that are <laughs> an inch and a half wide so oh, wow. yes they're they're very difficult to build and they're very difficult to detail and i think um when you look at that you really have to be at the absolute top of your game to be working on a project like that. And if there's any weak link in the chain, it will show up like a sore thumb. Yeah, like an inch and a half cock joint. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Yeah, sure does. All right, so I have one, I have one more uh, question. That, so your, um, your guitarist, your guitar business, you have a whole business of tools uh, that you sell, that you manufacture. I think that's really awesome. But what I'm really interested in is you said you were on the road as a roadie. So who, who, what's the band? Who's the band? Now, <laughs> name drop, right? So, <laughs> so when I went out and did rock and roll, um, my title was director of video production. That was my actual title. And we worked at all kinds of events where they needed big video support. So this is again, year 2000, 2001, 2002. That was when I was out on the road doing this stuff. So it was all projector based things. We did a lot of festivals. So we worked with tons and tons of bands. The company that I worked for did BB King's tour. Uh, I went out and worked with Paul Oakenfold and Moby. Um, I've worked with Anybody who is super popular around the year 2000, 2001, I worked with from Christina Aguilera to Jewel to Ricky Martin. Um, gosh, I could go on and on. Um, Lionel Richie, uh, <laughs> a bunch of hard rock bands, Monster Magnet comes to mind. Um, but we did a lot of support for some, some pretty big names out there. And um, I got to work alongside some incredible artists and you, you get a totally different appreciation for the level of talent that some of these guys have when you get to see them with no audience. And the thing that I always share with people, uh, Brad Paisley is a great example. Brad Paisley is an incredible guitar player. And when I think I probably did three or four shows with Brad Paisley and when nobody's there, he's playing Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> he's playing Metallica. And when that guy goes off, he just goes into another world. And nice. a lot of those really great guitar players, you would never catch them dead playing some of that stuff on stage because they might make a mistake. So usually what you see in concert is about a quarter of what they're really capable of doing when they just unleash. So and they're it playing is, it safe on stage, but the real performance is behind stage. Yes. 
And I mean, it's it's sort of like when you go to a pool tournament, you know, the green room is where all the money is made at a pool yeah. tournament. It's not not the big flashy stuff that you see on TV. Nice. Very, very similar in the rock and roll world. So is that kind of was your inspiration for starting your uh, guitar uh, parts business? So the inspiration behind that was um, and it's it's the designer in me. There's really just a handful of companies out there that are making guitar luthier type tools. And most of them are run by people who have a very focused manufacturing mind. How can we make this cheaper? It just has to be very straightforward, linear approach to the solution. And as a designer, I come in and look at all of these tools that have been established for 50 to 100 years. This is just how we do it, just how we do it, just how we do it. And I started to question, is there maybe a better way to do this job? Is there a better way to facilitate the person who's fixing this guitar or building this guitar? And so every time I look at a tool, I look at it through the lens of how could I make this a better user experience? And again, just the technical aspect of repairing guitars is something I've done since I was a kid because I played. And so I have this inside knowledge that, yeah, there's a lot of people who can repair a guitar, but then there's not a lot of people who can repair a guitar and are designers. And then there's not a lot of people who can repair a guitar who are a designer and also, oh, by the way, can program and operate a CNC machine <laughs> and do all of these other things. So, right. so that was how I got involved. It was, it was filling a hole because there were things that didn't exist. You know, there were certain jobs that would just take an hour, an hour and a half, something like that. And I thought, you know, you could do this job in 10 minutes if you just had a tool that would do it well. And part of that is, is probably coming back from, I'm really into cars and I've, I've always fixed my own cars and I still do to this day. I shouldn't, I should just pay someone else, but I've always fixed my own cars. And one of the things, if you look through a mechanics toolbox, there are all these specialty tools for one job. Hey, if I got to change the six spark plug on a, a Toyota 4Runner, there's one way to reach back there. And it's with this one little tool that I have. So there's all these specialty things because it saves them time and time's money. Once you sort of break that barrier of understanding that, yes, you can have a tool that is for one job and one job only, it starts to change the way you look at how someone repairs guitars. So that, that was the genesis for starting the guitar company. Plus, I just, I just love being around music and it gives me an excuse to get up on some big stages, uh, which I still do to this day. I wind up uh, backstage here and there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's always good fun. Yeah. It sounds like we have a similar pet peeve that uh, people that accept the status quo is okay or are not as much fun to work with as someone that's like, that's cool, but what if? There's, and I would say there's always a better way to do it. And better doesn't always mean more efficient. Better can mean a more elegant solution. Or even uh, just more fun. Or more fun. And it, I think solutions can always be thought-provoking and, and evoke a response. So the, you know, the solution of how do you make an end table, right? It can just have four legs uh, glued onto a top. Okay, that's one way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you could make really sinuous spiral legs. You can make a, a turn leg. You can make a very chunky square leg with intricate joinery. And there's a thousand ways to solve that problem. And I think that's, you know, as human beings, that that to me is what makes us interesting is how we can never stop coming up with those iterations. Yeah, for sure. 
All right. Should we uh, should we wrap it up here today? Yeah, I could probably talk for another 10 hours <laughs> about yeah. design, but I, I learned some things about you today. That was really great. Yeah, cool. I learned uh, new stuff about you, but uh, talking about design, that's what we want to this podcast to be about. So we hope you will come back and listen to us again or join us on our YouTube channels and, and see what we're about. We're hoping to get some uh, guests on and interview them to find out about what they're at. So join us next month for episode number two, where hopefully we will have a guest with us and and you'll get to hear from them. All right, thank you.